Welcome to our podcast, Complaints and Community. So we've created a space to talk about our, the, what are we talking about? <laughs> you know what? This is staying in. Hi guys. My name is Maliha. Um, this is going to be our podcast. If you know me from TikTok, I'm the same Maliha. And I'd like to pass the mic to my co-host. <laughs> Hi, I'm Nayeli. I'm Maliha's roommate, also fellow TikToker. <laughs> um yeah um honestly Maliha was like yo I got a class we should do some podcasts so that we talk about the stuff that we're always talking about anyway um because we we've recorded low-key like we, we haven't recorded anything but I feel like that could have been a whole podcast right there just like yeah. our couch conversations yeah in the evening so this yeah. is a space to this is that space yeah. so like if you if you know us on TikTok this is a deeper dive into us and today we wanted to talk about positionality um and all the nuances surrounding it so um i could start i am a muslim hijabi so like a visible muslim woman i am a cis woman i am a straight woman i am a plus-sized woman i am an english-speaking person i also identify as disabled it's not visible disabilities though and those are the starter. That's the starter pack. Yeah, we'll, we'll go into all of the different nuances <laughs> of our identities and relationality and positionality in a bit. Um, so I am a queer Latinx reconnecting indigenous, specifically um, the Pura Pacha community in Mexico, um, non-binary person, and I'm also able-bodied and I speak English, Spanish, and I'm learning Purepecha at the moment. Um, yeah, I am sure there's more things that will come up that we will discuss in a bit, but yeah. honestly, and also like identity is not a good substitute for relationality. So I need to explain like how all of those identities still fit into all these different systems of oppression, you know? Yeah, so, so let's get into it. Let's Let's talk about how your identity changes with relationality. Should we start with race? Let's go, let's get into it. <laughs> that is pretty much the core curriculum for my class, okay. race. You, okay, so the other day you were mentioning how um, your like Arab passing and how that impacted mm -hmm. you in Qatar. Yeah, so like in America, I am very much a brown woman, I'm a Muslim woman. And I think one interesting thing I've realized is religion, Islam particularly gets racialized in America because you have white women, like I'm talking blonde white women, when they wear the hijab, people assume they're brown, people treat them like they're brown. And so it's an interesting, cause they are still white. I'm not like erasing their whiteness, but like the minute people see a hijab, there's like racialization that this is an immigrant person, mm -hmm. you know? So with me, that was not the example you were saying, but with me, I can be Arab passing in Qatar because even though I'm South Asian and Bengali, I don't look like what you'd expect a Bengali person to look like. I mean, Bengalis look so different, first of all, right? But there's, you know, that's just still the stereotype. I'm very light-skinned. I'm tall. I'm big. I'm taller than the average Bengali man and woman. Like, you know, statistically, I'm taller. And so what happens is um, in the Arab world, I very much fit into what they look like. And so when in the Arab world, there is particularly in the Gulf, in Qatar, that's where I grew up, you know, there is discrimination around against like South Asians. 
I obviously because of where I grew up, like where I lived, they knew I was brown. But like, let's say at the airport, they see the American passport, they look at me, they start speaking Arabic. They see that because I was born in Qatar, so they assume I'm Arab. And even in um, in America, the only one time this has happened to me was I was at a Bloomingdale's in Manhattan, like Fifth Avenue, and I was there with some of my one of my cousins whose daughter is like super light skin, like she is very not super light hair she looks like an ethnic light-skinned person right mm -hmm. and we were both wearing abayas for some reason i think we went to a prayer or something we're wearing like the full black abayas and everything and flowy you know and they just assumed i'm arab and they like introduced me started giving me skincare and like just like coddling me with services because they thought i would pay for these nice things and mm -hmm. i was like oh thanks for the service i ain't got money like that though <laughs> Because you do have a lot of like the wealthy Arab people who do come to like New York, London just to shop. Mm -hmm. Like that's their thing. So if I'm walking in those buildings and I look the way I do and my niece looks the way she does, they just assumed we're Arabs. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah, I think it just shows how like race changes very much with space and mm -hmm. like people can, I guess, give you a different like racialized experience based on their perception of your race. So um yeah because when i'm in the hood when i'm in jamaica i was very much an immigrant south asian person the police harassed me they harassed my brother but in fifth avenue they don't see me as a brown woman they're seeing me as like a wealthy like money money sign i guess i don't know because people don't assume south asians are rich but they assume arabs are rich mm -hmm. you get what i mean that's yeah. that's that's why that assumption and that treatment changed and i was shocked because I don't normally get treated like an Arab woman. Yeah. In Qatar, I didn't get treated like an Arab woman because of where I went to school, where I grew up. Like, I was not in the... It's a very segregated um, society when it comes to the migrant workers because my dad was the worker, you know. But yes, race definitely changes with space, which is why when I learned the difference between race and positionality, it helped me... Identity and positionality, I should say. It helped me contextualize why so many people struggle Cause you know, so you could be like, oh my God, as a white person, you shouldn't say that. They'll be like, I'm not white, I'm Mexican. And I'm like, yeah. you can be white and Mexican. <laughs> Don't even get me started on the Mexicans. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. I was just thinking of the TikToker, you know, the dude who went after, uh, I'm trying to remember what's his name. I can't remember his name, but he basically, oh my God, what is her name? I know her name. She, you know, the girl who laughs, who like essentially like bullies the guys, just treats her, treats them. Drew? Back. Drew! Drew! Yeah. So this guy who was oh little... the guy who is like my mom is um, a native Mexican like she I don't know if she's necessarily indigenous but she's like a brown Mexican yeah, woman, yeah, right? yeah yeah and he was saying that he's not white because his mom is a brown yeah. Mexican everybody was like no dude that's not how that that's works, not how that yeah. works. Yeah. yeah also he's like a whole like um queer misogynist man now. I know like, I know yeah that is that was the whole thing yeah so let's let's talk about um. Latinidad, Mexicans, and how they, a lot of them on the West Coast specifically, absolutely suck at differentiating between race, ethnicity, and nationality. Mm. So this is something that I've really seen the difference in now that I'm on the East Coast as well, because I grew up in Southern California, and over there, the Latinos are predominantly Mexican. Mm -hmm. And a lot of us are racially mestizo, so like, um, we're racially mixed with European and native latin american ancestry and for a lot of us it shows like we are very like um 
some of us are lighter skin but still have like ethnic features so we still have like some of the native features and we get racialized that way um so a lot of us do not get racialized as white but a lot of them do as well um but also because there's a lot of there's so many mexicans on the west coast a lot of people just expect um a lot of racially white people to also be latino so that also contributes to the experience of racialization and then especially if you have like a last name that is um hispanic mm. um that also contributes to people still experiencing types of like ethnic stigmas and xenophobia because even if you're racially white you can still be um subjected to some of that um but what's interesting though is like here on the east coast because there's so many different um caribbean countries that have very different racial breakdowns mm-hmm. in their population mm-hmm. here the mexicans are a lot more likely to be like oh yeah like i'm white like if you're mm. if you're racially white mexican it's like you see um how there's so many afro latinos who do not have the privilege of distancing themselves from whiteness like that you are kind of like forced to really um acknowledge your proximity to whiteness and on the west coast because there isn't as many afro latinos like you can kind of get away with being like oh i'm not white i'm mexican even if you are racially white and so what a lot of people don't understand is that um you can be racially white and still be mexican because mexican is a nationality yeah and that also has nothing to do with your ethnicity so mm. like for me i say that i'm either uh, racially like i will accept um people considering me racially white because like in mexico people still consider me to be like more on the guerita side so that's like a term for like um lighter whiter mexicans but also like not necessarily because like i have cousins who are way whiter than me um and like they don't see me as being that white so like they still perceive me as being like mestizo in mexico they can tell that i'm not like 100 like genetically european but i'm still on the lighter skin side so they'll still i still have a lot of privilege for being like on the lighter skin side even though i don't necessarily have um the privilege of being like racially white in all spaces either um but here on the east coast i think i can blend in with the italians if i'm in the right space and i'm not wearing anything that kind of makes me look ethnically mexican in yeah, yeah so if i if i don't wear like um any um clothing from my indigenous community or any um like, beaded earrings or yeah. copper earrings from Michoacan, like i can kind of blend in with um some of the tanner european people yeah so that includes like the italians and also i think like so my features are common in like the jewish communities so mm-hmm. um yeah like it's um race can change with space but i forgot where i was going um earlier anyway there's there's so many different layers to this conversation yeah, and i think let's let's yeah i think like distinguishing race identity ethnicity nationality Mm -hmm. so there is identity versus positionality right a lot of people kind of get offended when you call them white especially Mm -hmm. if they're a person of color ish right because if somebody has gone through oppression within their community like arabs are a good example of that like Mm -hmm. arabs in america have been on the media for the wrong reasons they get stopped at their airports but i also think of an arab man who is white who doesn't have a beard and he's walking down the street they're looking at a white man you go what I mean? But I understand, like, I don't, it's not like calling them white as erasing their Arabness. Right? Yeah, exactly. It's more of like, you are Arab, that is your identity. Mm-hmm. But race, particularly, like, race is a very positionality thing of like, it's, it is within the space. It's like, I always ask people, like, if you're walking down the street, what, are, what, what is their first assumption of a stranger? Mm-hmm. Right? 
um and so and you know what's interesting there's also the white gaze in assuming race right like yeah it's true they center like what white people think you are yeah not necessarily like what people in um i guess non like anglo white people countries yeah. so yeah. it's just like they think of like u.s centered um conceptions of race mm -hmm, and then they apply mm -hmm, that globally because mm -hmm. i think what i really liked uh somebody on tiktok reminded us that it's not a social construct it is a colonial construct Mm -hmm. right race itself is a colonial construct because they imposed this thing they invented yeah. this and imposed it on the rest of the world yeah. and now we're all like confused and yeah. fighting each other like mm -hmm. oh my god this and that and your experience right so identity is yours no one can fight that you know like yeah. if that's what you yeah, are but, but your positionality can change mm -hmm. and that is subject to interpretation by external people yeah. uh, and then when you were talking about um race ethnicity right yeah. so your race is more generalized right like i guess i'm south asian mm -hmm. but the city is like bengali or Siliti, even if you want to get deeper into that area mm -hmm. but like an indian person or a bengali person are we're both south asians as a race if that makes sense yeah right? yeah i also think about um nationality is interesting right because mm -hmm. you have bengali people who are in india one of my best friends growing up she was indian bengali People don't necessarily think that because of the identity, uh, nationality identity of Indian having mm -hmm. a certain meaning. And then Bengali, Bangladeshi being the nationality, Bengali being the ethnicity, mm -hmm. um, yeah. and South Asian being the race. And, and even I, Bengali is like a bigger ethnic yeah. group, and then you are from a specific ethnic group. Yeah, so Bengali is a bigger ethnic group that is found in Bangladesh, all of Bangladesh, mm -hmm. and some of India as well. And then within the Bangladesh community there's multiple ethnic groups like and my specific ethnic group would be Sileti mm -hmm. which even now they struggle to recognize it's we recently found out that Sileti is a language and I'm like what this is this is not just some spoken word like, yeah like, it's a thousand it to a dialect right yeah they reduce it to a dialect and we are what's that word like people are recently figuring out something old there's a word for it um discovering essentially but like rediscovering if that makes yeah. sense because there was intentional erasure mm -hmm. there's a lot of history into it but i just thought it was interesting how all of these things overlap mm -hmm. um but people don't always hold the nuance and i think the biggest thing is the space changes who you are mm -hmm. and i think what i was trying to say earlier is not i think it's more than the arrow passing yes but it's almost like a class passing if that makes sense because if i'm in the hood with a chanel bag everyone's gonna assume it's fake if I go to the Met Opera with a Chanel bag that is fake, everyone will think it's real. Oh, interesting. You got it, Um. So yeah, just, just, yeah, just also, a very yeah. Everything you just talked about, like the complexities of ethnicity in and nationality, like all of that same stuff exists in Latin America as well. Mm -hmm. So for mm -hmm. me, um, my ethnicity is Purépecha, but I'm reconnecting Purépecha, so. Mm -hmm my mom's side of the family like i know my mom's grandma was a purepecha woman and she spoke the language but then everyone after well starting with her started marrying whiter people or mm. marrying non-indigenous people so like the generations um after her just kind of racially got whiter and whiter which is really common in latin america with the whole like eugenic propaganda of mejorando la raza um which literally translates to bettering the race um mm. and so they are no longer 
ethnically indigenous because my great grandma has passed away. She passed away in like the nineties, I think. Um, and I'm the only one at the moment who's reconnecting back to the Budapest community. So I'm the only one who's like on the lifelong journey of building community with other Budapest folks, learning yeah, the language, yeah. learning how to be a part of the community, um, how to practice the culture and diaspora. Um, so now that I've committed to that journey, um, and committed to being a part of that community and like centering the community's um, rules, I guess, when it comes to reconnecting. Now I feel like it's appropriate for me to claim being ethnically Purepecha, but it takes work to be able to do that. It took me like years to be able to feel comfortable identifying as indigenous, identifying mm -hmm. as a reconnecting Purepecha. Like I needed the mm -hmm. approval of the mm -hmm. community first, right? Um, and that's something that I think right now is really missing from a lot of um, reconnecting indigenous folks. Yeah. Because a lot of people, for starters, they don't even understand just how many different indigenous ethnic groups there are in Latin America. So in Mexico alone, there's like 78 indigenous languages yeah. spoken, I think. Yeah. Um, and every region has like its different um, indigenous communities. So in the state of Michoacan, which is where my family um, is from, the main indigenous group there is the Purepecha community, so my indigenous community, but there's also the Otomi community, there's also the Nahuas in Michoacan. Um, so there's different indigenous groups everywhere, and a lot of people um, are either just trying to assume that because their family lives in a certain state that they must have indigenous ancestry in that specific um, indigenous community that is predominantly the one of that territory but they're not getting evidence first to mm. um, investigate like which indigenous community they actually descend from, which is, it's, it's possible. Like having to do tricky. some of the work. Yeah. 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 But um, also a lot of people, even if they do know which indigenous community they descend from, they are starting to claim the identity without doing the work first to reconnect responsibly. Yeah. And that's um, something that has really showed how positionality um, impacts indigeneity and how yeah. identity and relationality are not the same thing. So mm -hmm. you can call yourself indigenous, but not have the lived experience yeah. of being um, an, an indigenous person. person. Yeah. So you need to have the socio-political relationality of indigeneity in order to really be able to call yourself an indigenous person. Um, and also indigeneity is not um, unique to the Americas. Like indigenous is a global term, right? So a lot of people are also centering the indigenous um, Latin American or indigenous American experience in general um, when they're talking about indigeneity and not realizing that there's also indigenous peoples in Europe, indigenous peoples in East Asia. Like there's, um, I have people who follow me on Instagram that I'm mutuals with who are, um, I don't want to say the specific communities because I'm probably going to mispronounce them, but I have one who's um, from an indigenous community, I think in Norway, mm. um, another mutual who's from an indigenous community in Japan. So yeah. there's the same complexities that we're talking about. Arguably, yeah. you could also, I'm not sure if you would consider um, your ethnic group to be an indigenous community of um, Bangla. Of Bangladesh? Yeah. yeah, probably. Like, I don't feel like I'm connected to claim that, but there are like indigenous tribes in that region and they have like names and stuff that I don't mm. want to name because I don't fully know if I'm pronouncing it right or if I know it correctly. Because um, yeah, because I think like my parents still grew up city-ish, well, village-ish, but I don't know. I don't know how the indigenous, there are some tribes, yes, there are some mm -hmm. tribes who like, they more so live um, with like, you know the land stewards type you know what i mean mm. 
but my parents definitely come from families that were more integrated i guess like my mom her she lived on the military grounds for a while like her my dad my grandfather like her dad was in the military my dad's side of the family they lived in villages but um they pretty much assimilated pretty quickly so i don't think there's particular i'm sure at some point everyone was in you know what i mean in that region because at least that's their region like they historically like when i did the ancestry test i was like a hundred percent from south asia um so i think we're like gonna start winding up <laughs> yeah because we only talked about race and ethnicity so yeah, far. yeah yeah we're gonna talk about um but i did want to touch on nationality and yeah. I actually no let's let's i want to name some of our my privileges at least since this is our first intro episode and particularly because i find the conversation around privileges and identity to be very american-centric because on a global scale as an american we are hella privileged in mm -hmm. the sense that you can travel anywhere yeah your passport most of my life it wasn't like that when i had a Bangladeshi passport and i came to the us i stayed put i couldn't leave i could leave it was probably like mad paperwork to leave but it was the risk of the trump was in charge it was the risk of all these laws anytime right so i think of how much being an american citizen is a privilege i think of being an english-speaking person in this world mm -hmm. is a privilege because even on the internet you go speak english there's this level of authority mm -hmm. given to you because you speak english um i know i have like weird accents that'll pop up here i did not explain the accent so um i grew up in a lot of different cultures but okay so i grew up in Qatar. Um, but I am Bengali, but I also moved to the US and I have most of my family in England. And I just because I've moved so much and I have exposure to families in different parts of the world, um, I just absorbed a lot of accents and I would just mimic and mirror different people and communities in my life. And now, like without thinking, it just randomly changes. I don't know what the trigger is, what it is, but I'm just like an amalgamation <laughs> of all the different accents. English, all of them are in English, but just different accents that I will suddenly take on and you will hear them throughout this podcast journey. Um, what else? I think another privilege, even though in America, I feel always like, oh, I'm working class, check to tech, but I'm very privileged in the global context that I could order Uber Eats in. Like, it is an insane privilege if you think of. I just think of like the the places I've been, the people I've seen, the communities I'm from and how far I've come and it's it's weird because obviously working class is working class and they have their struggles but not having a voice like not having a freedom of expression not being able to get on podcast because I'm thinking a lot of the migrant workers that people are talking about in Qatar and like we don't really hear their stories directly mm -hmm. right because they can't speak out their employment their livelihood everything's dependent on that yeah so the freedom of expression the freedom to discuss this, to understand this, to contextualize all of these, um, having the time, yeah. I think of the time privilege mm -hmm. that I have. Yeah. Um, yeah. I also have a lot of privilege, um, that comes with being an American, a Mexican American mm -hmm. because of how it's actually given me access to reconnecting back to my indigenous community because I'm, I think, um, even though like I have my issues with my uh, mom's side of the family because most of them are white Mexicans who live in Michoacan or other parts of Mexico, and they aren't as invested in divesting from whiteness or dismantling systems of oppression compared to me, I yeah. think the reason why I am so dedicated to that is because I grew up in the U.S. where I had 
um, the different experience of being racialized, but also the privilege of being able to um, access different kinds of knowledge that yeah. radicalized me over time and having the freedom of expression yeah. to actually um, talk about it. And also um, I had more privilege to be able to build community with people in different ways here in the States. So like um, I think about my cousins back in Mexico and they built their entire life around surviving in Mexico through um, by assimilating into whiteness, like even if they're not necessarily racially white, like that's the survival strategy that they had access to over there, just like assimilate to whiteness and that's that's how you'll survive. Um, sure, there is still plenty of radical thinkers in Mexico mm -hmm, who mm -hmm, are mm -hmm. not doing that and they're finding ways to survive too and I would have loved to see them do that. but. I also don't blame them because I know that's the family that we were born into. And I think like if I didn't grow up in the US, I probably wouldn't have had the same kind of access to um, reconnecting back to the Urepecha yeah. community as well, because I would have also been surrounded by family members who make it a lot more difficult for me to do that. So here, luckily, I have distance from that side of the family and I was able to find people outside of my biological family to help me reconnect. But I feel like that would have been a very different situation if I was still living in Mexico. So Yeah, yeah, no, this is very real. Yeah, and I think some of these privileges also come with one responsibility, but also like a double-edged sword, sword, sword. You know how like you mm -hmm. were saying, like, because you are reconnecting, you have some of the privileges of like talking about the community from Yeah. Like versus if you were born raised and still there your role in society would be so different yeah also being um a reconnecting indigenous person and not somebody who grew up connected to your indigenous community is a huge privilege especially yeah. um in latin america because if i had grown up um being part of a family that is still connected to the Purabacha community i would have also been subjected to so many different forms of discrimination and anti-indigeneity that mm -hmm, i mm -hmm. fortunately because i grew up disconnected had the privilege of not experiencing growing up so now I, it also gives me like an additional sort of privilege when I'm talking about indigenous communities because I feel like the non-indigenous folks in Mexico, fellow like mestizo people, although I guess I'm technically ethnically no longer mestizo because I'm reconnecting. Mm -hmm. um, the, the term mestizo has different functionalities. So like some people use it as like an ethnic identity to describe non-indigenous people with indigenous ancestry. So that's yeah. how I tend to use it with the... Um, that's how indigenous peoples in Mexico tend to use it, but also like as a racial identity, like being um, racially um, mestizo is a thing too. But yeah. um, people who say don't use that term though are a red flag for me because they don't understand the fact that the Spanish caste system that started that <sighs> term, it still has very real effects today. Yeah, so yeah. they try and act like- Because it's structural. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like they try and act like, oh, it's a, it's a colonial term, don't use it. It's like, no, but it has very real effects though. Like, yeah. We still have to talk about it. Yeah. We still have to talk about mestizaje and the settler colonial project of that yeah. and its current impact. So um, what was I going to say though? Yeah, like it's um, mestizo privilege ethnically is a thing. Like being a non-indigenous is a is a huge privilege, even if you're racially native. Mm. So this is this links into a bunch of other conversations yeah. that we'll have. But but yeah, yeah, I think I'm gonna, our next episode is going to go a lot more into yeah. like the indigenous communities in Latin America. Um, so um, I think like we're gonna wrap it up here. Thanks for listening, folks. Um, and listen to us next time. All right. Bye. Bye.